and welcome to the Ain't I a Woman podcast. My name is Jessica Kitwara Green. This podcast is recorded under Treaty 13 territory. It will remain the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and settler peoples. As the Dish with One Spoon agreement stipulates, all those who use this land must honor it and we must protect it and must always mutually act to share it. As part of this land acknowledgement, the Ain't I a Woman podcast acknowledges that Canada has been the site for state-sanctioned violence towards Indigenous communities for centuries as the result of colonialism and also recognizes the multiplicity of violence stemming from added social identities such as gender, class, disability, citizenship status, sexuality, and language, just to name a few. As a mixed-race, Indo- and Afro-Caribbean woman, I bear witness and I bear victim to the relationship between the legacies of anti-Indigenous racism in Canada and the legacies of anti-Black racism in Canada, and sustain that the two struggles are inherently connected. This podcast works to undo the colonial and patriarchal legacies of discrimination one episode at a time. I hope you will join me in this work. We're always better together. So, as promised, I'm going to be talking about my journey into the social justice realm. And I think before I do that, it would be best if I gave a little introduction or a little backstory into my life um, and how I came into the social justice sector. Um, So, I won't go too far. I'll start at high school where... I went to a school that was 99% racialized. I swear, we had five white people, if that, in a school of 1,600 students. Um, Either you were South Asian, you were East Asian. uh, There was only a few black people. And so um, that was an interesting dynamic, going to a school of people who looked just like me, who came from the same culture. The other thing is that my high school was led by a 95% white or white passing staff, which created a weird dynamic because they, they didn't necessarily have an understanding as it pertained to each of the cultural groups within the high school. What I can say is that there was never a Black History Month, which I think is a weird thing kind of looking back at it, is that we never had an understanding of Black history. Um, and I think that 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 has to do a lot with the fact of who was running our school and who was leading it. We had teachers, we had staff, administrators who essentially were all white, so they didn't have any focus on it. Um, And then, you know, the other thing with high school is that you have that lovely careers and civics course. Um, And for a lot of us, civics means a class where you can just sleep. (laughs) There's nothing that you actually really do in a civics class. Um, And so my civics class really mirrored that. Uh, All we did was read the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but we actually had no contextual analysis of what any of that means. And so what we were taught was that the Charter says we're all equal and free. So therefore, we are equal and free, which is really great. And, you know, legislation is definitely a part of 
the whole process or the whole structure or system of of racism. Um, but it's not the be all and end all. And there are other components within the structure of systems which perpetuate racism and discrimination of all forms um, that extends beyond just legislation. The other thing is that I had a politics class uh, that I took in the 12th grade um, and a couple things there. That was a class where we got to look at politics and delve into critical analysis. The literature was predominantly composed by white male writers, which is a problem that extends even within post-secondary institutions and within our broader systems and cultures of whose voices we see as important in these conversations. But what this meant was that as racialized people, we were taught to believe, again, that we are equal and we digested this utopian understanding of navigating our world. It had nothing to do with how we would actually experience the world once we left high school. Again, it was a utopian, which could be realized in a school where everybody looked um, looked the same. But it was something that once we sort of got into the quote unquote real world is something that would never actually be be realized. Now, what I learned at school was significantly different from the teachings at school. And so um, there are some colloquial terms or terminologies that a lot of black, Caribbean, African or just generally racialized groups uh, say and I'm going to share one. Um, it's extremely popular. And if you're racialized or black, you know exactly where I'm going. But the saying is, you have to work twice as hard to have half as much. What this means is the normalization of black productivity, black ideology, black thought, black work as being devalued as in comparison to white or Caucasian or European ideology, thought, work, and so forth. And so if we want to be recognized and if we want to be deemed as uh, productive individuals or as individuals with good thought and good character, we have to work twice as hard to be able to be seen in that way. And it doesn't come easy. And it's something that we've normalized within our culture, unfortunately, that this is something that we need to do. Um, and we've Essentially, that normalization has accepted it as being okay. But I don't think it's okay to work twice as hard to have half as much as what white people have. And so there's, I think, a really stark contrast in what I was learning at home and what I was learning at school where we have this ideology, yeah, we're all equal, we can all do the same thing and like the world is great, no racism here in Canada, like cheers. Whereas at home, you know, you get the real talk, right? Like you get the real lesson learned and you get told, no, actually, that ain't how life is. You have to work twice as hard if you want to be as successful or to be seen as equal to your white peers. Now, fast forward a little bit. That was Jessica in high school. And I have to say throughout all of my high school years, I've definitely been super interested in women's empowerment and looking at uh, bettering the life experiences of women. Now, I probably wouldn't have called it social justice back then. I definitely used the word empowerment, which maybe at some point in the podcast, I'll talk about why women don't need to be empowered and that we're actually already empowered. But 
essentially what it boils down to is that I've always been into feminism and social justice, but necessarily I didn't necessarily have the contextual analysis, the frameworks or the language to refer to it as that. So now fast forward into my third year of university. I went to Ryerson, which was a very white campus in comparison to my high school. And it also provided a very interesting shock culture where Toronto is the most diverse city in Canada. And so for the first time in my life, I got to experience groups of people who I never talked to or never saw before in my entire life in my entire life there were groups of people I have never ever seen before with my human eyeballs now I think that's an important uh, piece of information because you know without that Ryerson experience I would have never been exposed to these different groups like I mentioned or different thoughts or different ideologies. I, I do have to say, because my high school was a monoculture, it didn't necessarily have a diverse set of experiences or a diverse set of uh, opinions or perspectives, and that it was very easy to get along with people across the entire high school because we all came from very similar upbringings. Now into third year of my university degree. I actually had two major learning experiences which shaped my understanding of social justice. So one was a course that was taught by an amazing professor on citizenship. What I learned in that course was the idea of the Canadian citizen and nationalism. So in Canada, our version of nationalism is not as easily understood or easily seen as what we would probably compare to an American version of nationalism. So our nationalism is more like we have free health care or Canada is free. Everyone is equal here. That's our version of nationalism. And that's because that is the ideology that our government has given us. And now, again, to be fair, our legislation says that. Uh, our legislation speaks to fairness, equality. And that is a narrative that has been crafted since 1867. Since 1867, our government has been saying this. So it's very hard to deviate from this understanding. And so... Because this is our version of nationalism, we want to embody those values. And the ideology of equality and fairness isn't the same experience for other racialized groups. But because our narratives suggest that it is, that is what a Canadian nationalist will purport. This ideology is also taken up by Canadian uh, immigrants, refugees, uh, sponsored folks, other racialized groups uh, who want to feed into this nationalism because it's hard to get away from. Um, because again, the Canadian, Canadian identity and Canadian sense of being is so closely tied to this ideology. And so taking that course made me really understand, holy moly, like... It's true. It's this idea or this sense of equality isn't actually felt for everybody. I think that that course really helped me understand, uh, take a big, big look and a better have a better understanding of what it actually means to to be a Canadian and what Canadian nationalism looks like and how it's actually a, little, a lot more harmful um, than the more obvious American version of nationalism. 
Now, the second thing that really shaped my understanding of social justice was working at the Center for Women and Trans People at the Ryerson Students Union. Now, this is where I learned hard and fast, hard and fast lessons on social justice. Holy moly. So, so you know, during my time there, I was called out so many times. I was told what I said was harmful. I was being violent. I've had people yell at me and tell, well, not yell, but people tell me that I had to, if I want to learn something, I should Google it. And to be honest, my first reaction was like, who the hell are these people? I know about social justice. Like, don't don't be coming at me with your aggressive tone. Don't be telling me to Google it. I'm asking you a question. You should answer it. During my time at the Center for Women and Trans People, at the beginning, I had to navigate that space and I felt like I was walking on eggshells because I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing to the wrong person that sometimes I just didn't talk. And it became exhausting to have to hold conversations with people who I know would be offended by things um, and by things I didn't necessarily mean to offend them with. And that was a hard, that was a hard experience for me to go through because I believe so deeply that I wasn't trying to harm somebody. I was just asking questions. I was being genuine and I want to learn, but I'm going to go into an example of how dangerous that ideology is in a second. But you know, it, it's that experience while it was hard and difficult i stuck it out for better or for worse stuck it out and at the end of it i learned so much about me i learned so much about different perspectives and different people but most importantly i learned how to not perpetuate violence um and other individuals and i think that that's the key learning here that i want to share with all of you um, and how we can do that so but first let me embarrass myself and tell you a story about how i put my foot in my mouth and said the most dangerous violent ridiculous thing to somebody and if i could go back in time it's definitely a conversation i would have changed but you know time travel is not a luxury we as humans have achieved as yet and so for now it will just be a learning lesson from hindsight so one day i struck struck up a conversation with someone who's non-binary um we might get to what that means in later podcasts but essentially this person has no gender um and they're gender fluid the conversation was absolutely great but the topic of gender came up And this is where it gets, again, embarrassing. I asked, does that mean you're a tranny? Could I have put my foot more in my mouth? Absolutely not. Just even saying the words now makes me want to cringe. So in hindsight, again, I want to throw up. um, But I have to say, in that moment, that was language that I was familiar with. I didn't understand the difference between gender and sex, but I knew as a person in a conversation that the facial expression of the person I was talking to was an utter disgust, and I knew I had said something wrong. I felt bad, of course. You know, I wasn't trying to offend this person. I was just asking a question. Trying to better understand somebody else's world. But oh, of course... My immature self did not stop there, of course. I asked, wait, wait, wait. 
Does that mean you're a girl with a penis or a man with a vagina? Oh my god, Jessica. <laughs> Again, cringe. So at this point, the other person turned to me and said something to the effect or something along the lines of, that's actually none of your business. Tranny is an inappropriate term and that's harmful. Again, looking at things in hindsight are easier to understand where I went wrong. But in that moment, in 2014, I thought I was asking an appropriate question. Because what I actually was trying to ask was, does being a tranny mean that you have the opposite genitals than the way that you dress? So I was trying to clarify what being a tranny is. Maybe it seems like an honest mistake to some, maybe a communication to others, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is to educate yourself. And that is the lesson that I took from this extremely uncomfortable conversation. So it's not the responsibility of marginalized groups to educate me on their issues. Now, again, Jessica in 2014 would have said, well, I was just asking a question. Why did they take it so personally? Or I was just trying to get a better understanding that shouldn't have been the reaction. But what does, but what this, but what this does is center my feelings within the conversation instead of centering the feeling of someone else's experience. I'm sure we've all had moments where we just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to. I'm sure in life, aside from all the social justice politics, if you will, we've had moments where there are things we just don't want to talk about. We don't want to think about. We just want to forget but in a conversation where I was a person that have never had to have dealt with the problems between gender and sex because of my own privilege, I think it's very unfair and truthfully weird to turn to someone and say, hey, it's your job to educate me on gender identity because you don't subscribe to society's gender binary. Uh, Jessica, no. Check yourself at the door, girl. If I wanted to learn about gender identity, then damn it. Learn about it on my own. Again, it's not, it was not the person to whom I was speaking to in that conversation, their role to explain what a tranny was or the fact that tranny was an inappropriate term. I think it's more than enough for them to have called it out and said that is a violent term. That is something that we don't say anymore. Educate yourself. And yes, it's none of my business. Um, despite me just trying to get a better understanding of what being a tranny was because I had no idea. But again, it's not, it's not their responsibility to educate me. And so here's what I have to say. And here's the lesson is that Google is your best friend when it comes to these issues. And so when you engage people who are different or who don't fit the status quo of being white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, mid-aged, Protestant, whatever it is, if they don't fit that status quo and you have a question don't ask the person who you're standing in front of. What you need to do is ask Google. Just in the same way that you use Google to find things or to find people or whatever, you can use Google to get a better understanding of social justice issues. Now, 
once you've done a little research and you still have questions, I think that that's an appropriate place for you to reach out to people who are open to having these questions. I think where it gets really dangerous is where we think that any and everybody is open to having these conversations with people at any time. And in a place where I, in that situation, may have felt like, I needed this information instead of checking in with that person and seeing if they wanted to give it to me. And so I think it's important that if you do have questions, you seek out people who are willing to give you the answers for it. Now, circling back to my story about my two hard and fast lessons of school and learning about uh, learning hard and fast through work. um, What I have to say was that, again, what my reaction could have been to people calling me out, people calling me dangerous, people saying that I needed to change my language was to have been defensive. I felt I had to defend what I ha- what I said. Um, I felt embarrassed. I claimed to be someone, again, who understood the issues impacting women, yet I'm clearly participating um, in the perpetuation of violence through language. And so what I could have responded with, and if I'm being frank, my knee-jerk or gut reaction was to say, you're being a little too politically correct. I thought it was annoying. What do you mean I have to change my language? What do you mean I have to change what I say? This, How can this one word be so harmful? Like, you need to get a grip. Stop being so sensitive. Um, but what this actually means and what I'm actually doing by essentially negating what somebody's saying as being harmful what this means is that i believe that saying insulting things to other people is okay and that you shouldn't have any consequences for those behaviors and if you want to say something harmful to somebody then you better expect that someone's gonna clock you and put you in your place and tell you what you're saying is harmful you can't just say whatever you want and expect people to be like yeah 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 this is great this is not wrong um What we need to do is unpack the thought that politically correctness is a problem within society. Where I say, no, 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 politically correct just means you're saying something that's being mindful of other people's experiences. And being politically correct means you're saying things with the intention of using the right words. And so when I was being called out in these experiences as being hurtful and harmful and, you know, saying the wrong things, what I did was hit up my best friend Google and I started researching the topic. Um, What I did ask people who were calling me out is, what should I look for when I'm Googling? Uh, Are there specific search terms that I should be looking for? Um, And when I did search things up, what I found was astonishing. And I have to say, it really helped me better understand my own critical analysis within my own work and my own understanding of the way in which I walk and experience the world. And so instead of trying to fight to maintain the status quo, what I did was I accepted that I could be different. I could be a better person and I could create a better world around me just by understanding and listening to somebody else's perspective. So the next time you hear someone fighting with you on being politically correct, feel free to tell them this story. 
We know that everyone is on a journey to critical analysis and no one actually comes out of the womb understanding these topics. And so it takes time and effort and pushing back against the status quo to progress humanity. And the journey isn't easy. I fumbled clearly. I've shared some examples in my own life and in my own my own journey with these issues. And so everybody makes mistakes. Every single one of us. Even to this day, I still make mistakes. But the most important thing to do is that when somebody calls you out for making a mistake, they're doing it so that you don't have to go and you you don't go back into the world and you perpetuate these types of words or violence through words. You can use language that is more inclusive and that doesn't hurt or harm other people by the things that you say. And so I hope that you were able to find some... Uh, uh, so... That is my story of coming to understand social justice through the use of language. Um, and so I hope that you could relate to this story. Um, and if you have, please feel free to leave a comment below. Tell me what your experience was. Um, and I also hope that you find some solace in this and knowing that even as a practitioner of social justice and somebody who lives and breathes this work on the day-to-day -day, that even I make mistakes. I am not perfect. I am human. But when I am called out for a mistake, I quickly and swiftly correct my actions. I learn and I become a better person because of it. Just know that we all have to start somewhere and starting is always half of the battle. That's it for today's episode. I hope you like what you heard please leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast and forward to a friend. Please also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at jessiekett. That's J-E-S-S-I-E-K-E-T or on TikTok at jessiekettg. That's J-E-S-S-I-E-K-E-T-G. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time.